Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I mean, aside from the flash and, and the, the grandeur of, of bayonets taking a place at midnight and, and just the, the, the craziness of the battle, Stony Point really shows the maturity of the American army. That's Michael Sheehan. He spent his career studying the Battle of Stony Point and debunking some of the mysteries that surround it. He shares his work with us today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of the new book, Cabal, The Plot to Kill General Washington, by Mark Edward Lender. Available now. Hello everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're going to talk to historian Mike Sheehan about the Battle of Stony Point in upstate New York. One of the seminal moments in the history of the American Revolution, and still to this day, one of the most consequential and sometimes controversial battles of the war. Mike's a really great historian to talk to on this matter, uh, because he not only grew up right near the battlefield, but he works there as a profession. He has literally dedicated his career to understanding this battle and dispelling some of the myths, and there are many, that surround it. But in a general sense, maybe to editorialize a little bit, uh, one of the things Mike will talk about is the, the prominent use of quotations or maybe misquotations when dealing with the Battle of Stony Point. And in this regard, I think his insights are very important because the lessons can be applied broadly uh, to all historical fields. One of the things that we really pride ourselves on here at the Journal of the American Revolution uh, after all, uh, I'm not just a spokesman, I'm a member as well, uh, as they say, uh, is that it really is an open platform for people from all walks of life, regardless of their race or their creed or their age, who are genuinely interested in understanding the American Revolutionary Era better, to research and have their research, more, more importantly, uh, shared with the world. Now it puts you in the line of fire. That's all part of publishing. Uh, you can and will be critiqued, and you should hope you are, uh, because history is a conversation. Uh, history is not a one-way street, and it's that dialogue, and in that dialogue, that we grow as historians and we expand the field. But uh, when you when you publish something like like Mike's uh, article or uh, any one of my books, um, one thing that you'll find is that you always want to support your arguments with the best evidence available. Uh, and I'm guilty of, of, of this next part, but one of the pitfalls you have to avoid uh, is using sources, primary source material, specifically quotations uh, that are of maybe questionable repute. Uh, the, valid the validity that just doesn't necessarily uh, pan out all the time is a problem. There are a lot of great quotes that are just irresistible in any number of historical topics uh, because they just like 
you know, they're just Hollywood enough. They're just dramatic enough that makes your point uh, stand out. And sometimes you even give them like block text, you know. Sometimes you even give them big parts of, of a single page. Uh, but you have to always remember what your, your mission is, what your goal is. And that is to present verifiable history for everyone. Because it's really dangerous to use a misquotation or, or a, a quotation of questionable validity. Uh, because that gets shared by someone else and that gets shared by someone else. And uh, it can be the ultimate game of historical telephone. But not in a good way, not in a positive way, if that's something you cannot verify. There's a lot of really famous examples of this. Uh, but one of the ones that I've sort of been, uh, you know, kind of stewing over lately has been involving Blackbeard the Pirate. Um, one of the things that is unique about Blackbeard the Pirate, very famous, you know, character in British North America in the early part of the 18th century, is that, you know, in that echo chamber, in that game of telephone, um, you have people saying things about where he's born and what his age was. Uh, and as you check the footnotes and the quotations on these facts, you find that they don't trace back to a primary source at all, but they oftentimes trace back to a, a secondary account of him written by a modern historian uh, who set his age based on how he thought he looked in a woodcut, which you really can't tell by a woodcut, uh, and his place of birth just by a conjecture of where most sailors were born at the time. And we have taken that as gospel. Uh, and because of that, you know, it causes some reevaluation, I think, uh, us to reevaluate a bit uh, about about who he was. But that's the danger of it. I mean, it's, it's convenient at the time to find a juicy, wonderful quote, uh, but it's not necessarily conducive to the overall field of history uh, because, you know, that's a mistake that can quite literally reverberate over the centuries. Uh, so listen to, to, to Michael Sheen's interview today with a few things in mind. One, the importance of Stony Point Battlefield. I think that's, that's re really the heart of it. Uh, but two, and this is really the crux of his article on the affair, which you can find at www.allthingsliberty.com. A lot of the misconceptions we have come from rumors and hearsay and 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 quotations that really don't have backing in the primary source material. So I know this episode so far has been a little bit of inside baseball, a little bit of you know hardcore uh, uh, technicalities of history, but that's quite frankly why you're here, right? So I'm not afraid to to have that conversation. You're certainly prepared for it. Uh, so, anyway, uh, this week our guest is Michael Sheehan. We're talking about Stony Point Battlefield. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Michael Sheehan, thank you for joining us. Hi, Brady. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. Well, uh, in, I, I got a, a Bachelor's of History from Randall College in New Jersey. That, that's where I spent most of my time. Um, but my my biggest the aspect of the background is I've, I've basically grew up at Sunny Point Battlefield. I've been there since 2008, um, and I've been the senior historian there since 2015. Um, this year, 2019, is actually my 12th season at Sunny Point. So that place has really been, <laughs> as much as it is my main focus of research, also my main focus of, of how I kind of grew up in the field. Um but I've also been a brigade member, a brigade of the American Revolution member, 
uh, for 11 years, and specifically in the Brigade of the American Revolution, I'm a member of Man's Artillery Company, and I'm uh, one of the board members at large for that unit uh, and for Morgan's Rifle Corps. So uh, I've been doing revolutionary war for the better part of a, a little over a decade now. And I've been writing for the Journal of the Revolution since autumn 2014. So that's been another uh, blessing to have for about the past five or so years. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I, I, I was born and raised in the town of Stony Point. And my, my parents and my, my father's side goes back generations in, in right here in Lockton County, New York. Uh, and really living in Lockton County, New York, you're in under an hour away from all the sites in the lower Hudson Valley and the Hudson Highlands that are so relevant to the revolution. Um, whether it be Washington's headquarters in Newburgh, Washington's headquarters in Japan, Fort Montgomery Historic Site, the Windsor Cantonment Site. Um, uh, and my grandfather would actually bring me and my brother around during the summer to all these sites. So I, I, I kind of grew up with this whole notion that, wow, George Washington lived and worked in my, essentially in my backyard. And, and I just, it, there's really a few places in Rockland County you can go that don't have some kind of mark of that 18th century or that American Revolution uh, uh, aspect. For those at home who aren't familiar with Stony Point, uh, let's give some context. Uh, what was the state of the war in 1779? Well, the state of the war in July 1779 or the summer of 1779, it's mostly a stalemate, especially between the main armies. Um, Washington and, and General Jeremy Clinton are kind of faced off there at loggerheads. Neither side has really made a considerable move to advantage. Uh, the British are kind of showing an interest in the South, especially around Savannah and Charleston. General Pulaski is going down there. Um, in upstate New York, the British and the Loyalists are, are really showing an upper hand along the Mohawk River Valley. Uh, and that's going to lead later on in the summer of 79 to the Clinton-Sullivan Broadhead Expedition, which is going to at some point put a check to that. Um but for the most part, especially with the main armies, it's it's really a stalemate in, in summer of seventeen seventy nine. Tell us a little bit about General Anthony Wayne, one of the great characters that comes out of American history. Sure, General Wayne is just one of my favorite people. He's I mean, you can't read him and not just be fascinated with him or or, or love him. Um, he's just such a go getter, as opposed to some of the other generals who are a little bit more cautious. He's kind of threw caution to the wind sometimes, for, for better or for worse. Uh, but, but Brigadier General Anthony Wayne was grandson of Irish immigrants uh, who lived in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, very near Paoli, which is uh, very important to General Wayne. Uh, before the war, he was a he had a lot of jobs. He was a land speculator, uh, very briefly with um, in Canada with a company that Ben Franklin had. And he was most famously a tanner. His family ran a tanning business. Um, before he, immediately before he joined the army, he was a Pennsylvania legislator. Uh, and then he was named Colonel of the 4th Pennsylvania Regiment from Canada on the Canadian-New York border. He briefly commanded Fort Ticonderoga um, before he was named the Brigadier General of Pennsylvania and joined the main army. And, and through, through battles like Brandywine, Paoli, Monmouth, uh, he really earned a reputation as a fighting general and it, later on, kind of gets compared to uh, General Patton of World War II. It's kind of the kind of general that wants his troops prim and proper, you know, 
shiny helmets or in the case of Wayne, a powdered hair and clean shaven and retreat is just not an answer. What were the circumstances that led to the Battle of Stony Point? So uh, along with that stalemate of 1779, trying to lead up into that and break that stalemate, over the winter, Parliament had, and Lord George Germain, who was the, uh, uh, one of the leading British officials in charge of the colonies, had asked General Sir Henry Clinton, who was Washington's counterpart, to bring Washington into what they called a, quote, general and decisive action near the opening of the campaign. So essentially, come on, let's just get this job done. We've been fighting for a number of years. We, we need some bold stroke. And Clinton's answers to that is on May 31st, 1779, nearly uh, 6,000 troops are moved up towards Stony and Verplank's points, about 40 miles above Manhattan. Um, they took 3,000 troops took over Stony Point, 3,000 troops took over Verplank Point. Uh, Stony Point being a rocky outcropping with uh, very little resistance from the militia. They had a small blockhouse that they burned, <clears throat> it didn't make quite much of a stand. And once Stony Point, being the higher uh, rocket ground, was taken, the British hauled a number of guns up into the heights. And overnight, they bombarded Verplank, which had uh, famously Fort Lafayette, a small bomb-proof blockhouse uh, on, on Verplank, which is the eastern and lower, uh, physically lower point of, of the two. Uh, which together uh, formed what was called King's Ferry. Uh, and at this point, this is now June 1st, Cap, uh, 1779, Captain Thomas Armstrong of North Carolina surrendered to actually Captain John Andre before he was made Major John Andre. Uh, and now the British held King's Ferry. And not only does that threaten Washington's communication across the Hudson, it threatens West Point, which is only about 11 and a half miles away. And... Um, it really becomes a thorn in Washington's side. Could you talk about the battle briefly, maybe summarize it for us? Sure. So <clears throat> the battle itself is the British have a heavily fortified point, Sunny Point, 15 pieces of artillery, upwards of 600 troops. They have a number of vessels of the Royal Navy situated around them. And Washington and General Wayne decide, well, this can't be a conventional battle. So what we have to do is storm the, storm the position. And to do that, they're going to do that at midnight with just the point of the bayonet. They're not to load pieces. So they split up into three columns. One side is going to go through the swamps below Stony Point uh, into the Hudson River and then make a sharp turn up into the fort. The other side is going to do just the opposite of that on the north column. And those columns are to, to attack with just the point of the bayonet, not to fire a single shot. In the middle of the two columns is a, um, a column of men who were actually loaded, who were firing as much as possible. And they were to keep up what was called a perpetual and galling fire. They were the distraction. So as the British attention was drawn out towards the noise of the firing, the silent bayonet men on the north and south columns could come in in a classic pincer movement. And within 25 minutes, 25 minutes, Stony Point had fallen. In your article, you focus on the major uh, misconceptions you feel that uh, exist in and around the Battle of Stony Point. What do you think is the biggest? Oof. <laughs> Stony Point, I mean, the American Revolution in general has tons of misconceptions, as I'm sure a lot of our, our readers and listeners know. But Stony Point, just maybe because of the nature of the battle, happened to have many of them. 
Uh, and one of the biggest ones is all these fanciful quotes. They always kind of irritate me when I hear them. Um, because a lot of them come from the 19th century. One of the, one of the ones that always gets me is um, when planning at the battle, General Wayne was supposed to have said, you know, General Washington, if you plan it, I'll storm hell. And Washington, being the cool and collected gentleman, was supposed to have said, well, perhaps, General, we ought to try Stony Point first. And there's, there's just, I mean, it, it sounds nice. There's just no evidence that ever happened. And one of the other big ones is that going up the hill of Stony Point, because it was quite a precipice, uh, that the men were supposed to be yelling out, remember Paoli. Well, Paoli was a battle where Wayne's men were attacked by at, by General Gray of the British Army uh, at night with bayonet. Um, not a great night for Wayne. And I'm sure in the back of his head, he was attacking at midnight with the bayonet. The idea of Paoli must have been there. But he, we have plenty of orders and plenty of documents to show that Wayne ordered strict silence from the men. And in fact, the watchword they were supposed to say was not remember Paoli, was in fact, the fort's our own. Once the men had gotten into the earthworks of the fort. Um, the idea of the remember Paoli does come from some pension reports, so it's possible some individual men were saying it, but it was not ordered and it was not something that um, we have any evidence or reason to believe happened widespread. This is one that really stood out to me as unusual. Uh, talk about the bayoneting of the dogs before the battle. Well, one of the other big misconceptions is that uh, as the light infantry were marching down from their home camp at Fort Montgomery, um, they were bayoneting a number of dogs in the local area so that the, as the troops marched by, the dogs wouldn't be barking and therefore alert the British garrison. Well, there's, there's a lot of problems with this. Firstly, it doesn't appear in any of General Lane's orders. Um, secondly, the area they were marching there was very sparsely populated, and that's assuming that everybody had a dog. Um, and the biggest two pieces of evidence to, to show how silly this is is that, well, if you bayonet a dog, what kind of noise is it going to make? It's not going to be a good noise, which, if anything, would alert the British garrison. But secondly, this is... Lower Rockland County, Lower Hudson Valley, um, there were a lot of loyalists. And there were a lot of people on the edge. You didn't want to teeter them one way or the other. So by stabbing their dog, you're probably going to direct them away from the Continental Army. So it, there's just no evidence and there's no reason to believe that any of the dogs were ever harmed in the making of Stony Point. Who was Peter Francisco and what was his role in the battle? Peter Francisco is just one of those guys. See, see, he did exist. He, he has all these myths sur surrounding him, but he, in fact, was a real person. Um, he was supposed to have been a soldier from either Italian or Portuguese descent. He was from Virginia. There's a number of stories, uh, everything from he was left in a dock or he, as an infant and raised by other people or that he, I mean, just so many silly things about his origin. We just don't know his origin. Um, but everyone is united in saying he was a massive human being. And there's no reason to believe that there couldn't have been a huge individual, especially for someone who has so much mythology attached to him. Um, he claimed, there's claims that he struck the British flag at Stony Point, meaning the first person in the fort took the British flag down. Um, and there's just no evidence to see that. However, 
he claims in his pension that he was in the Forlorn Hope of of which is the first group of twenty men to go in to to lead the men in without arms, without the bayonet, with just axes and other things to clear away debris. Because purporting his size, there's really no reason to deny that. I mean, it, it seems plausible to me. Um, but what's really telling is that the muster rolls prove that he, in fact, was at the Battle of Stony Point. Um, Private Peter Francisco served in Captain Clough Shelton's company of the 6th Virginia, which means he would have been in the 1st Light Infantry Regiment of Colonel Christian Zabager with the right flank. So he was absolutely there at the battle. Um, he does claim he had a huge wound, a big scraping abdomen wound. Um, maybe it healed quickly, we don't know, because his musterals don't indicate wounded after the battle. He seems to have been just fine. But we do know, I mean, despite his mythology, we don't know anything special that he did in the battle, but we do know 100% he was actually there. Talk about the story of Pompey Lamb. So Pompey Lamb is a, a, a slave. He was purported to have been very successful at selling goods, especially strawberries, to the British officers at Stony Point. Uh, he was a local local uh, person, um, and he was so adamant about selling and so successful that the, the British officers, especially the younger ones, gave him the password into the fort so that he could sell them um, provisions at nighttime. And if, if eventually, he used this password to lead the Americans into the fort on the night of the battle. Now, there's just no evidence that that ever happened. Uh, in fact, we have a number of things that say it didn't happen. Um, mainly that uh, Colonel Henry Johnson, the British commander at Stony Point, banned passwords at nighttime. So if the British officers were accepting passwords, they were doing it against their commanding officer's will. Um, the other thing is the strawberries just aren't very big in the first two weeks of July in, in New York. <laughs> uh, we're not the South. We don't have the same growing seasons. So I don't know what they were purchasing because they were very tiny strawberries, if anything. Uh, and the biggest biggest bit of this is that it just doesn't happen to appear anywhere in the 18th century. You don't you don't see this the story written down until the 19th century. However, just like with Peter Francisco, Pompey Lamb did exist. He appears on muster rolls. He was a slave of Captain um, Lamb, who was who did live local to Stony Point. So we have every reason to believe Pompey Lamb was a real individual. Um, the real enslaved person who lived just near Stony Point, but we just don't have any proof. And he never himself claims that he did all these fanciful things the night of Stony Point. What do you think the ultimate legacy of this event should be? I mean, aside from the, the flash and, and the, the grandeur of, of bayonets taking a place at midnight and, and just the, the, the craziness of the battle, Stony Point really shows the maturity of the American army. Uh, how it grew under von Steuben's training, how determined and confident, really how confident the, the American troops were, despite the loss and despite the stalemate. The, the American army had never attempted anything like this. They had never attempted a bayonet assault at night. They had never attempted uh, a, a two-pronged attack in such a manner up, uphill against a British fortified position. They had never done this. And it really shows the maturity and how far they've come as a true professional army, not a ragtag bunch of soldiers, a professional army, that they can accomplish such an amazing task. Uh, it really showed that any British move 
the Americans could come and counter it. They had the will to come and counter it. It wasn't it wasn't 1777 or 1778 anymore. The Americans were ready, and they were ready to fight. Michael Sheehan, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.